afternoon. Today we'll be studying the book of Jonah. Uh, we're con- What's that? Whoa! Taking a detour, and I think I know why. Because Zephaniah t- takes place at a later point when the Assyrian people have actually, they've done the deed and uh, conquered the, the Israelites. That's not it. I thought it would tie in with Jonah in that way. All right. Well, Zephaniah, we were studying Jonah yesterday in church, so that's what I was thinking. But Zephaniah, how, how, he's, he's, he's like my one of my top five favorite minor prophets. Amen. He's up there with Obadiah, kind of tied there with Nahum. You know what I'm saying? So awesome. But here's my favorite prophet. He's actually... A living person today, and he's our visionary leader, our pastor, our good friend uh, Joe Irostek. But I'm gonna keep warming up the batter's box for him. How's everyone? How's everyone doing today? Amen. Loving Jesus. Amen. You know, uh, we're we're all prophets. If you think Amen. about it. Acts 2, 17, 18, look at it. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. It's a nice little book, just a little nuggy. It's called The Prophethood of All Believers by Roger Stronstad. Looks at Luke and Acts and studies how Jesus was the mighty prophet. And now the spirit that was upon him makes us mighty prophets to preach God's word just as they did. So... Just, just a little nuggy there. Amen. So welcome up our favorite prophet. Come on. Thank you, my brother. You can keep that and put it back for me. Thank you. Yeah, just making sure we got the mics going good. Uh, everybody open up your web feeds. Make sure it's coming in good today. Came in great Sunday with the new way of doing it. And then uh, share it if you care. Go ahead and take a listen to it. Make sure I'm getting a good, clear signal. Those who are live, thank you for joining with us. Uh, the reason why I'm actually going to Zephaniah is because I did so much studying in the minor prophets and... I'm feeling it's time to move on from them, and I just didn't get to download them on you guys. So I said, let me go to another one that I really studied. It was uh, a choice between Jonah or Zephaniah for last week, uh, you know, Sunday. So I, I did, went with Jonas, and I got Zephaniah. Everybody's getting a good, clear signal? Okay, wonderful. Zephaniah chapter 1, and it's a, a book that many preachers don't preach out of, and I think you're going to get it within uh, the first two verses. And you'll hear, this is why it doesn't fit on uh, most TV evangelists, uh, you know, fundraising shows or, or in most uh, books and these different things. And that's probably the reason why it's Jared's one of top five, is because of those same sassy reasons. Let's go. Zephaniah, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gildei, the son of Amariah the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Verse 2, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. (laughs) That kind of says it right there. I mean, how are you going to preach that on your best life now? You know, I mean, how are you going to say that in your, ser- your series, 10 Ways to Have a Better Life? How can you make this up to, to be something that it's not? It's strictly a judgment passage giving hope to God's people. And I'm glad that Jer- uh, Jared reminded us of the timeline. And if you're like me, timelines are really helpful because I can't remember anything, man. I can't remember where this king was at, where this prophet was at. So I always go back and check the timelines. And so from what uh, I'm hearing from Jared, just as a reminder, this is after the Assyrian captivity, uh, but is it before the Babylonian captivity? Uh, I think it is. 
Okay, so after the Assyrian captivity, before the Babylonian captivity. Just give us a double check on that because I was really open to the Lord giving me a message out of Jonah again today, but it wasn't until I was in the back that I felt like just as going to Zephaniah and some of the homework that I would have refreshed myself on, I actually didn't have the chance to do that. So uh, those are just things you get in your study Bibles. You have a study Bible there, uh, Desi, does it kind of show you? You have one too. Yeah, they'll show you that. Any commentary will tell you this is Zephaniah, this is when he lived, this is what's going on. And so uh, it's important, but it's things that I'll just, I'm just being honest with you, those are my weaknesses. When people start telling me about this king or that time, it's hard for me to remember. When's the time frame here? Yeah, so there we go. After the Assyrian captivity, before the Babylonian captivity, and uh, he's going to come hard with some of this judgment. Now, we look at verse 2, and we want to see judgment language here. Judgment language is a language that speaks in generalizations. In verse 2, it says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, but as we'll read through Zephaniah, we'll see that there are things that remain. The Jewish people, God's people will remain. So everything doesn't necessarily mean everything, but what I think we need to remember Remember in judgment passages is when God is speaking in kind of that broad, you know, sweeping language. Is that what He means is everything that doesn't please Him, everything that is uh, that that is not a part of His plan. He's sweeping away, and you'll see that in just a little bit because I don't want you to think there's a contradiction here. As I was reading it, it sounds like God's basically done with all of humanity because it says, "I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth," declares the Lord. Now there could be a way just to kind of insert the new heavens and earth here, and that is literally everything leaves this earth and a new earth comes. That, that is a way to kind of work around that. But I don't think that's really what he means because as he defines kind of what everything is, everything in, in this sense is Armageddon, the judgment of the world, and then establishing the millennial reign. And, I, and I'll show you how we get to that. Verse three, I will sweep away both man and beast. So, that, I mean, it kind of doesn't leave much of an option if you're taking this literally and not taking it as judgment language. Uh, when we look to Revelation, we get the, the numbers that go along with the judgment language. So a third of the earth, or this 100 million, 200 million people die. And so then we can be more specific with, with what everything means or everybody is destroyed, just to give you an idea how to tie it into Revelation. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So... You get what I'm saying? So either you're, you're, you're taking this in judgment language, which is not a parable, but parables are a certain kind of language. So here's something that you always want to be able to answer back to somebody. If they say, do you take the Bible literally, you go, yes, but I also take it literarily or literarily. How do you say it? Lit, lit, um, lit, what? Literarily. Thank you. Literarily is taking it in its, lit- in its liturgical, or uh, that word I'm trying to think of, literary context. Literary, literary. Let's look at that word as Joe goes to school with you. Literary. Okay. Okay. Literary. Does everybody see this word? L I T E R A R Y. Literary. And then there is literarily, let's see how that's spelled, literally, literarily, it's A-R-A-L-L-Y, okay, did I, yeah, did I misspell it there because I'm getting another word showing up, 
Yes, this is how I have it. L-I-T-E-R-A-L-L-Y is in a literal manner. Literally. Literal. Like literally. You guys have heard people say it. So I'm taking this literally. So if somebody says, do you take the Bible literally? You say, yes, I take it exactly as it was meant to be written. I take it literally, literally, and then I take it literally as literature, or excuse me, that's the same word, <laughs> um, literally. Okay, does everybody understand that? Okay, so there is two words that we're trying to say. The first word is literal. The, li- the, the second word is what? Literary. Okay, so we take it within its literary context, literally. Thank you, Jesus. There we go. Now, you hear a real smart person say that out of their first sentence, and it makes sense. They don't have to do all this you know. They have studied it, right? Because they are some hard words to remember there. Here's, let's leave the, the play on the words that sound alike. Let's just leave that out the way, okay? We take the Bible seriously, but we read it in the genre that it's meant to be read in. Okay, that's a real simple way to understand it. So I take the Bible seriously. This is a serious Bible, but I take it in the context that it was written in. So when it says, I will destroy all mankind off the face of the earth, I have two options. I either say, God's going to be done with all of mankind. So it would just go back to God being by himself, hanging out with some angels or something. Or all mankind there, you're you're not following along, so you got to keep track with me. I'm on the end of verse 3, please. The idea then would be, it's a concept of something bad happening to a lot of people, but there will be others that remain, okay? So I don't take it as God destroying the entire human race and then starting over with the uh, Nauvoo from uh, Avatar. Wasn't that the name of that alien race, people? Nauvoo. Navi? Navi. Nauvoo is where uh, Joseph Smith was from here in Illinois. Navi. Check that, too. Let's just keep hanging out, man. Let's just make this a cool chapel, right? You're going to help me. Navi. When I destroy, as we're just talking about the most lightest topic you can possibly talk about right now. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. And some people pronounce it Baal. Baal is another way of pronouncing that word. Uh, the various names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and also who swear by Molech. Was it Navi? Okay, thank you. So is God going to start over with the Navi and destroy mankind? No, it is judgment language. That's the literary genre, and we'll see why we take it that way because he's going to say what he's going to do after he destroys everything. There's going to be people around, and there's going to be animals around. So, And he's also not going to contradict himself in all the other places. He said he's going to only destroy the wicked and keep the righteous. So uh, he's being very clear here that both Jew and Gentile are going to suffer this judgment. So I want you to notice that because a lot of times when we're talking to people about the Jesus that was sassy or the Jesus that was rebuking people, they'll say, well, he just did that to the religious people. He was like Mr. Nicey-Nice to all the pagan people. And that's not true. First of all, Jesus is the author of all the Old Testament books. And so if you have a limited idea of just what Jesus said while he walked the earth, you're missing everything he said to the prophets. 
Because who's the one speaking to these prophets? Jesus. There's only one mediator between man and Christ Jesus. I'm God and man. That's the man Christ Jesus. But before he was the man, he was the Logos. He's always been there. He's always been speaking to us, okay? So it's very clear here. It says he's against, look at verse 4, he's against Judah or Judea, and he's also against Jerusalem. But he's not just against all of those uh, who are there. He's also against these pagan nations. And it's not just those who are in Israel doing pagan things. You're going to see he's also against their nations as well, okay? So because he says right here, those who turn back from following the Lord neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Verse 7, be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. Now, this language, day of the Lord, can be used in different ways. Sometimes day of the Lord refers to the captivity passages, or day of the Lord refers to the Armageddon, end of the world passages, as we would know it. And then sometimes it refers to the actual end of the age, and the heavens and the earth pass away, and everything becomes new. So day of the Lord is a great subject if you want to learn how God used it in the moment, like, like hey, look at the day of the Lord coming upon you for this judgment of Babylon, etc., or day of the Lord as the Armageddon, God setting everything right, and then you know the millennial reign, or the day of the Lord when everything is made new, new heavens and new earth. So those are kind of the applications there. Then it says, uh, be silent before the Lord, verse 7 again, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. So right there, we see he has consecrated those he's invited. So now we, we understand that everybody can't be killed because there's people coming to this feast and the sacrifice that he's provided. Now, we, we look to this sacrifice as Jesus. He's our Passover lamb. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials. Now we're going to get who the every is of all mankind that's getting destroyed. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. And what that means is all who avoid stepping on the threshold is uh, people in their pagan uh, temples had a tradition that you couldn't step on uh, the threshold between the outside door and the inside of their temple, you know, or, you know, the, 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 the differentiation between outside and inside. You weren't supposed to step on it. That was superstition. You're nodding because you've heard of this? Yeah. Yeah, and that was a Jewish temple. Yeah, this is for the pagan temples. So the threshold here is referring to the temples that they would have because it says, all who avoid stepping on the threshold who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. So every temple had a threshold. We have a threshold, the doorway right there. We've, we've changed our doorway to make it like a mat right there. You guys have seen that. Okay. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter. So it's going to start in Jerusalem. Basically what he's saying is there's going to be like this massive punishment coming to the Jerusalem people, but then it's going to spread out to all the world. And that's basically what we see when Jesus comes back. The battle is going to be an Armageddon right outside of Jerusalem's area and in, in, in Jerusalem uh, area. I think isn't Armageddon considered still part of it's still part of Israel, but not a part of Jerusalem. So let me be clear: it will be in Israel, but not in Jerusalem. Go ahead. Yeah, look at the Valley of Megiddo. I believe it's an is it Valley of Megiddo in Israel? Okay. So on that day, declares the Lord, I will go out, go up from the fish gate, wailing 
a cry will go up rather from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All you merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. And you see there all in all this language right there. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent. So now you start to see like, well, there's a lot of alls, but who's really getting the punishment in the all? It's those who are complacent who are like wine left on its dregs. And so the idea is imagine you're, you're um, fermenting wine and you don't get it all out and you just leave it in there until it becomes like nasty vinegar or whatever. That's what he's saying. You guys have become so lazy, you don't think I'm coming back and you're going to get judged and destroyed. Uh, let's keep going. It says, then who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Let me read verse 12 so we can see it in context. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they will build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. Okay, so... There's probably three applications of what we're learning right here. This is going to happen to Judah, which Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. So so the only tribes of Israel that are free now are Judah and Benjamin, because the ten have been captured and overrun by Assyria. Now you have Israel just being this one section, which is pretty much just Jerusalem, and he's prophesying that it's going to come there, and it does come, day of the Lord does come, when Babylon invades it. But not everything is done as we're hearing. It doesn't affect all of the nations because he's going to keep going on and talking about how all these other nations start to get destroyed at this time. So it doesn't all happen there. But it's a partial fulfillment. So this is where you see prophecies having multiple fulfillments. Like something relative to the people at that time is going to come to pass, which is the Babylonian captivity. The Babylons, uh, the Babylonians are going to invade Jerusalem. But all of this is not going to happen. Then when Jesus is around and the disciples ask him, when is he going to come back? He points to the temple. He points to the city. And he says, this city is going to be destroyed and all of these things are going to happen. And then he begins to go on through all these prophecies. And so it happens again. They're destroyed. And a lot of these things come to pass. But it's not totally fulfilled. And everything Jesus added on to it in Matthew chapter 24 in a place like that is neither fulfilled either. So it's like this prophecy gets partially fulfilled in Babylon, even gets fulfilled a little when Babylon invades, and then it gets fulfilled a little bit more in 70 AD when the Romans invade, and then Jesus adds a little bit more onto what's going to happen. And so finally at the Battle of Armageddon, which is where? In Israel? Did you get the information? Megiddo is in Israel, correct? Okay. Then that is going to be where, (coughs) excuse me, it's concluded and everything comes out the way he's talking now. So Zephaniah's prophecy still fully hasn't been realized until Jesus comes back. That's what I'm trying to say. And guess what? There's a whole bunch of other stuff waiting for Jesus to come back. A lot of stuff in Isaiah. A lot of those things that run right in together with the first coming of the Messiah. And that's why a lot of the Jewish people rejected Jesus is because he wasn't doing this stuff that was in the same passages that he was supposedly fulfilling. They're like, let's take it in context. After this happens, then lying's supposed to lie with lamb. There's supposed to be peace on the earth. Remember, even in Isaiah chapter 9, let's just go there as an example. In Isaiah chapter 9, which I'll be reading, Lord willing, for our Christmas service, 
we see that the government will be upon his shoulders. And so they say, oh, you want to say to us a virgin is born and all of these other things. Well, what about this and the things that we haven't seen come to pass? Look at Isaiah chapter 9. Start there at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his what? His shoulders. Okay, so where's the government on Jesus' shoulders? Right? I mean, that's what they're going to say back to us. Where, where, that's what a Jew, when you listen to Dr. Michael Brown debate Jews, that's what they're going to say back to us. Where is the government on Jesus' shoulders? And we're going to point to passages like Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to say it's there. He's got all authority in heaven and earth. It's been placed on him, but he hasn't come and enacted it yet like Daniel 7 said he would. Jesus said the Son of Man will come back and do all of that. Didn't, didn't he teach that one? That the Son of Man was going to come back and do all that. So what's, the, what's going on between his first coming and his second coming is the age of the church. The age of the Gentiles and Jews being united together. That's the whole point of Paul's writings. And, and just to go through it here, it, it says, you know, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then look at verse 7. So it's sandwiched right in there. Bun, meat, bun, right? It's sandwiched right in there. It says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Don't read it as a Christian right now. Read it as a Jew. As a Jew, how is it going to never end when it never even started? And it says what it will look like. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on. From that time on, when the, when the child is given, from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So what are you going to say to a Jew who's saying, if you're going to put that on Jesus, you've got to put the other things on Jesus? What are you going to say back? You're going to say they missed the first and second coming, and you're going to go to other scriptures. And then you're going to be, you're going to be on the defensive, and you're going to explain how first and second coming plays into all of this, and then you're going to go on the attack to their worldview and knock it down and say, hey, it had to be Jesus because there were prophecies about the second temple that it would have greater glory than the first temple, and that temple's been destroyed, so where was the greater glory than what Solomon had? And that's where you have to show them that the Lord himself said he will come to that temple and visit that temple. Did the Lord himself come to the second temple other than in, in the form, uh, you know, in Jesus, the son of God? No. So now you've got problems on their timeline. And on top of that, Daniel's timeline, roughly 430 years after his prophecy, the Messiah was supposed to come. That's what Daniel prophesied, the weeks. You study out those weeks. It's supposed to be around 430 years. Where, where's, where's all these things? It didn't happen. So you're only left with rejecting the whole idea of the Messiah. Islam doesn't help at all with its make-believe stories of Jesus. So you're only left with being a Jew or a Christian. And then now that we've settled it, it's, it's, it's you can't be either a Jew or a Christian now if you take the Bible serious. Now you have to abandon it for an entirely different religion. And then if that's true, then the whole world is, is nothing. You know, we live in nothingness, which is a whole other discussion. But we're not coming to nothingness. It is a real world that we're living in. Amen. Jesus is Lord. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. Okay, now let's go back to this and understand. Verse 14 of Zephaniah chapter 1. The great day of the Lord is near, is near. So for them... Uh, the Babylonian captivity happening around 600 AD, uh, uh, BC rather, 
and then Jesus coming, and then 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, is, is 600 plus 70, 670 years near for the people of Zephaniah's day? No. So what's near for them? The Babylonian captivity. That's near for them. So it makes sense to them. So there is a legitimate fulfillment in this day. And then and going back, going back to Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, which you guys may want to start learning these terms, preterism, which is that everything has been fulfilled and that it's finished. They believe all of Matthew chapter 24, for full preterists believe all Matthew 24 has been fulfilled and all the book of Revelation has been fulfilled. And they say it's all judgment language. That's why when you try to say, did, did, did a third of the world just, just get destroyed and this and that, they're going to say it's all judgment language, which once you put numbers on things, you can't just say now it's hyperbole. God's being very specific on what's going on. And then he's very specific. Every eye shall see him, every tongue confess. You know, come on, you're going to see him as a cloud. As he went up, he's going to come down. All these other things just, just start to blow up that position. But there is a position that will say, because Jesus was saying, this generation will not pass away, that that must mean it had to have been 70 AD, because how could you say, you know, 2,000 years in the future, this generation will not pass away? So how do we get around that? Well, there's two ways we get around that. We, we say that either this generation refers to those who start seeing the signs. So once the signs increase and come to pass, that generation will not pass away until everything is fulfilled. That's, that is a great option there to take with Matthew chapter 24 for, that gen, for this generation. Or what, what I believe is this generation refers to the church. It's a generation of people. It's a kind of people. So this people will never pass away. This, this generation of people, this generation of Christians, this kind of people will never pass away. That's the way I take it. But you could take it as the other way, that the, the signs. Either way, they're good, they're good options. But the point is it was relevant to Jesus' followers because of that generation that he was speaking to, they did see the destruction of the temple. But once again, unless we start wiping away everything into parabolic language, they didn't see it all. And the same thing is here. It's near, and they're going to see it, but they don't see it all. So what does that teach us if there's at least three days of the Lord that we can expect to see before the new heavens and the earth? The Babylon, like if you're, you know, these guys, the, the Babylonian captivity, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the battle of Armageddon. What can we say is that God speaks in themes and that God builds his word upon multifaceted or multi-leveled revelations. And so it's meant to be applicable literally to all times and places. So when I go back, let's say I'm a Christian at, at 50 AD, and I go back and learn about the Babylonian captivity and put it to Jesus' words, I can say, man, there's probably going to be some destruction in my lifetime because Jesus said it was going to be near. But then I can go back at, at Zephaniah and go, it probably won't be everything because everything is not going to be done you know, that way because it would be impossible. Literally, if they thought about it, and, and, and they always believed that Jesus' coming was near, but they had no idea how big the world was, it would have been impossible for some of those things to have been fulfilled. Take, for example, and this gospel shall be preached to the ends of the earth. That's impossible. How in the world are you guys going to do it? They didn't even know that you know, the Native Americans in North America even existed yet. So... There, there, there had to be a sense of dependence and a nearness of God always coming, but also a sense of we've seen this been, we've seen things be partially fulfilled and a delayment for total fulfillment. That's probably a, a possibility as well. And so we should remember that. Okay, the great, this is Zephaniah 1.14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on that, the cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. 
That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Their entrails like the S word. Because they did not have a different word between the poop word and the S word. Like we say poo-poo, and then we say the S word. For them, dung, that was it. It, it, was as, it was as harsh and as vulgar or as normal as you could possibly use it as. I mean, it's just, that, that's it. That, that is the Bible saying they're going to get their blood poured out like dust and their entrails are going to look like a bunch of poop on the ground. You know what I'm saying? You see intestines, how they kind of curl up and make a little pile, and you see a a horse poop on the ground, like you know, or a dog poop on the ground. That's what your entrails are going to look like. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. So that kind of sandwiches in verse 2 of chapter 1, all the way to verse 18, everything that's going to happen. And so did that happen, did that happen at the Babylonian captivity, which was coming near upon them? No. The, the fire of God's uh, jealousy did not consume the whole earth. Didn't happen. Was mankind destroyed off the earth, or a large portion of mankind destroyed off the earth? No. Did it happen at the temple, uh, the second temple's destruction in 70 A.D.? No, so it's waiting to be fulfilled. But could this poetic, uh, could this literal language be like poetic language to describe those two destructions? Absolutely. Because if you lived in Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonian captivity, you would have felt like the world was on fire. You would have felt like mankind was getting wiped off from the face of the earth. If you were living in the time of Jerusalem in 70 AD, you would have felt like that. Now let me back up and tell you why I'm doing this right now at this season in our church. I'm doing this because the Lord told me that we need to prepare ourselves for revival. Amen? And so if we're going to prepare ourselves for revival, we've got to go back to the prophets who preached about revival. This is how they preached. They did not mince words when it came to judgment. You don't get revival by just talking about how nice God is all the time. We understand that it's the goodness or the loving kindness of God that draws men to repentance, but notice what it's drawing men to. Repentance. What are you repenting for? All the things that he's going to do, uh, all the problems and the sins you've done because of what he's going to do to you now because of those things. So you can't understand the loving kindness of God until you understand your sin and the judgment he's going to bring upon you. Amen? And so we, we hear all of this as we just read with them when we go, oh my goodness, who can be saved then? God, what, what's, what's going to be left of the world then, right? And then now we hear the cry for the remnant, for the revival, for the people to bring forth the word of God, the spirit of God, and to save as many as they can, just like in Jonah's day. Let's go to chapter 2. Gather together. Gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect. See, that's revival preaching. Does everybody get it? Come on now. Do you get it or not? You get it? Well, you better preach, you better preach chapter 1 of Zephaniah before you preach chapter 2. 
See, that's what draws men to repentance, is all of this is going to happen, but gather yourselves together before this happens and repent. Look at what it says. Before the decree, verse 2, takes effect, and that day passes like windblown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, here's revival, verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you will be sheltered. On the day of the Lord's anger. See, that's how I know all is not all there. All mankind is not all mankind. Because now he's saying, I can find shelter if I repent. But it's going to look like, even on Judgment Day, Armageddon Day, it's going to look like all mankind was wiped out. Because only a few are going to be saved. The Bible says, wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Wide. The blood is going to flow. I mean, the horses, the men, the riders, the kings. I mean, it's, you're going to look across the earth, and it's going to look like a, like a river of blood. You're going to look at destruction. A third of it got destroyed from the stars falling from the sky. The ocean got destroyed, a, a part of that, a third of the, the waters. And you're just going to look at the, the green of the land. I mean, you're just going to see. It's going to look like all mankind was destroyed. That's what it's going to look like. And the remnant's going to be saved. Amen. And it's going to be for those who seek righteousness, who seek humility, and they come to the Lord. And they say, I'm willing to obey your commands. So that's why today I want to go to Wright College. So I want to take our portable sound system with the battery we have from the truck and detach it from the truck because there's no way to park around that corner that I want to get on so bad at Wright College. And I want to get out there and proclaim to them this message. Seek the Lord. And another prophet says it like this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call out to him and he will answer. This is the cry of the preacher. This is what you and I need to preach. We don't deny the chapter one. We don't deny that. We tell them, this is what we deserve as America. This is what we deserve as Chicagoans. This is what we deserve in our community and our families for what we've done. But God is giving us a chance to repent. Now, he's going to start naming off all these nations because, like I said, the same Jesus who walked the earth and taught and did those things inspired these prophets, and he is against the nations. He is against them too because, it's, you know, they say, well, Jesus didn't do it while he was here. He didn't have to do it while he was here. He was the voice of the prophets. He was, thus says the Lord. Who do you think when it says, thus says the Lord? Who do you think that is? That's Jesus. Thus says Jesus. Just put that in there every time you see, thus says the Lord. The Father has always spoken through Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus. Thus says Jesus. Are you listening? And then it's Jesus in Revelation saying he's going to destroy everybody. So why doesn't he talk like that in the Gospels? It's so simple. Why is he so upset with the Jews in the Gospels? It's so simple. He said, I came to seek and save that which was lost, to get the lost tribes of Israel. That's what he says his, his journey was on the earth. That's why he didn't go to India. That's why he wasn't prophesying against whatever. His whole entire messianic mission was to speak to God's people, to die for the cross, and then for it to go to the whole world. So before, before he dies and resurrects, he tells people, do not go and tell everybody about this. He is purposely trying to keep it a secret. It's called the messianic secret. We've learned that. Leighton Flowers does a wonderful 
wonderful job of doing that. Calvinists try to do this to, to make it a salvific message that God doesn't want the whole world to be saved because he's saying, don't tell such and such, and I'm not drawing all, uh, you know, you can only come to me if the Father draws you, and the Father's basically only drawing those he wants. No, that's not saying that's a salvific message. What it's saying is he's only coming to the, tree, the children of Israel, and if you followed the Father by hearing Jesus in the Old Testament, you'll be given to him now. If you haven't, you're going to be kept out. You'll have eyes, but you won't see, ears, but you won't hear. That's not God hardening people's hearts saying, I only choose who's going to be saved. What it's saying is the people who only understood Jesus in his ministry, his earthly ministry, were the Jews who were obedient, like, like we hear about um, the man who, who welcomed him as a child at the temple. What was his name? Simeon, thank you. And then the woman that was praying, who was she? These ones... Hannah, Anna, thank you, those who welcomed him. But once he is now resurrected, what does he now say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go to what? All the nations, Mark 16, go into all the world. You weren't supposed to do that before. When you were with Jesus, the 72, just go to the lost tribes. Go in this area. Just stay here, and then don't tell anybody outside of it. It wasn't his mission. His mission was to fulfill the Jewish prophecies as the son of David. Now we are to go into all the world and preach the Messiah. Amen? But here, here's all the curses coming down on these nations. Let's go through them quickly. So the Philistines, who were supposed to be destroyed during uh, Joshua's time and David's time, uh, never were. And I think more specifically, David's time, right? Somebody let these guys live, and they shouldn't have lived, if not both David and Joshua. So Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied, and Ekron uprooted. Woe to you who live by the sea, and the, you Ketherite people. The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. So, so now you see, these rebukes are the rebukes of Jesus. But why isn't Jesus, once again, walking on you know, the shores of Galilee, like pointing out to this nation going, I hate you and I hate you and we're going to judge you because that wasn't his mission. His, muzzle, his mission wasn't per, to, to pronounce judgment on all the nations of the earth. His judgment was upon the people of God and to say, you've made my house a den of thieves, of my father's house. And it's supposed to be a house of prayer. And that's why he's speaking so harshly to him. But this is the same Jesus. So uh, the same Jesus who gave this world, well, well, you could put America right here. God's going to judge America. God's going to judge them. God's going to judge others, you know. Okay, he says, I will destroy you and none will be left. The, the land, verse 6 by the sea will become pastures, having wells for shepherds and pens for flocks. That land will belong to the remnant of the people of Judah. See, the remnant. See, there's going to be a remnant left. See, that land will belong to the remnant. So not all of the earth is going to be destroyed. Now, here's just something you've got to understand. Whenever we as Christians are putting ourselves back into the stories here and, and understanding what these promises mean for us, we have to understand we're engrafted in with Israel. That's Romans chapter 11. So you don't become a Jew. You are not a spiritual Jew. That is not true. The Jews are still the Jew, but what happens? You get engrafted to them. You get engrafted to the vine of Israel. So whatever happens to Israel happens now for you. So you can read into this. The remnant of Judah will be left. You'll be in that remnant. Can I get an amen? You'll be there, but you're not a Jewish by descent, a Jew by descent. So the, law, the land will belong to the remnant of the people of Judah. They, there they will find pasture. In the evening they will lie down in the houses of Ashkelon. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. This is how I know the millennial reign has to happen. 
It doesn't just go from judgment to new heavens and earth. There has to be a period of time called the millennial reign because there is way too many prophecies laid out in Isaiah and in Zephaniah and in prophets like this where there's supposed to be all these things going on like a civilization while God's people are prospering. And yet, as we will see, there's still some of the enemy left, but they are now the servants of the people of God. So they're there, but now, like I've always told you, they're working the vineyards. They're doing those things. And they're not being treated like how African Americans were treated. It's not like that. But they don't have the same citizenship in that millennial reign. Okay, let's keep going. So it says, the Lord will... The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. I have heard the insults of Moab. So here's another pagan nation. And the taunts of the Ammonites who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, surely as I live, declares the Lord, the God Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. A remnant of my people will plunder them. Now watch. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. Okay, now get this. We know during the Babylonian captivity that a lot of these nations got destroyed too. But now they've been rebuilt through these other nations like Iraq and Iran and Egypt and so forth. So does that mean this prophecy did not come to pass? No, it was a partial fulfillment. When's the final fulfillment? At Armageddon. Do you get it? But once again, we get all their land. We get all of their spoils. This is what... They will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the earth. Distant nations will bow down to him, all of them in their own lands. Now notice this, there has to be survivors in those lands. Now, some people may say, well, that means it's only the Christians that are there. No, there are some that are left over, as we know now from Revelation, they're left over. And we know from Isaiah as well, there's other pagans that are left, but their gods are destroyed, and now they all worship God with us. Does everybody get that? Okay, it just says it right there. Their gods will be destroyed, but distant nations will bow down to them, all of them in their own land. So that's talking about the millennial reign. Nations are still around. Chinese is still around. You know what I'm saying? The Iran is still around. They're not all destroyed, but now they worship our God. Cush in Africa. The Cushites too will be slain. Assyria, the ones who invaded um, uh, Israel before. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh, Nineveh utterly desolate. Because eventually Nineveh did go back to their wickedness, then did destroy the ten tribes of Israel, and now God said, I'm going to destroy you. And you can read about that in Nahum. Leaving Nineveh utterly desolate as a, a, and dry as the desert. See, but are there parts of, of Nineveh, like right now, not dry as the desert? Have they been rebuilt? Even maybe there's suburbs there of wherever Assyria is at, you know, or Nineveh is at, and that, those lands. Yeah, it's been rebuilt in some areas. But when is it utterly destroyed? It's utterly destroyed at the second coming of Jesus. And it says, flocks and herds will lie down there, the creatures of every kind, the desert owl, the screech owl will roost on her columns, their hooting will echo through the windows, rubble will fill the doorways, the beams of cedar will be exposed. This is the city of revelry. They lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one, and there is none besides me. What a rune she has become, a liar for wild beasts, all who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. Okay, so everybody see what happens there. Okay, so let's just review. Chapter number one, God says he's going to judge the world, starting with Judah. 
Chapter number two says how he's going to judge these nations around Judah. And then he says that there's going to be some that are left from Judah that are going to rule the world. And the survivors of those other nations are going to worship the one true God. Now verse three goes back to, uh, chapter three goes back to Jerusalem. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. See, this is revival preaching again. Her officials within her are roaring lions, but uh, her rural rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice, and every, day, every new day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. So how would we apply this back to us? We would apply this to the church. The church is failing. The church is not doing the right thing. Verse 6 I have destroyed nations. Their strongholds are demolished. So he's kind of going back to those judgment passages. I have left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste. They are deserted and empty. Of Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will fear me and accept the correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly, corruptly in all they did. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the, day, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. And that's why we know, and the final judgment is literal fire. So he says, Israel even sees judgment, but they still don't repent, so they themselves will be judged. So this once again goes back to the Babylonian captivity. They were judged, and then Babylon was judged, and then they go back to doing wrong again, and then they're judged again in 70 AD, and then God will judge them for the last time at the Battle of Armageddon because not all, uh, excuse me, uh, he, he will judge the world the last time and spare Israel because then all Israel, the Bible says, will be saved. All Israel will be saved. That's what Romans says. Then I will purify the lips of my peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. When is all calling on the name of the Lord? Because it didn't happen after the Babylonian captivity because they would have received Jesus as their Messiah. Didn't happen after the destruction of uh, Jerusalem because all of them would have become Christians. When do all of them call on the Lord when they see all the nations being judged? And that's in the weeks of tribulation building up to the final battle as they start becoming you know, invaded by all these armies, they now realize that it was always Jesus, and that it's always been about Jesus. 144,000 get saved, 12,000 out of every tribe. They become evangelists. They start getting martyred, and then right before the, the nation is destroyed, uh, God comes down in Armageddon and destroys all the nations. But this shows how Ju Jerusalem remains unrepentant. And so the last chance they'll get for that group of people will be before Jesus comes back. But none of them can use the excuse now and say, well, you know, if Christians are really right, then I'll repent when, when that time comes because then I'll really know. No, because you're not promised you're going to see the tribulation. And who wants to stay for that anyway? So that's just being ignorant. Study the scriptures if you're a Jewish person and repent and receive Jesus now. Uh, verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. So now this is talking about the millennial reign. God is going to start having people upon the earth, bringing, bringing him offerings. On that day, Jerusalem, will, on that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. 
See, that's, that's the millennial reign. That's the time to come. But I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. That can't be, like I said, it can't have been any other time than the time we're looking forward to. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, see, who is they? See, this is another little hint that there's other people that are not still in the right way. They're not the Jews, and they're not like us, the Christians. They will say, do not fear Jerusalem. Do not let your hands, hands hang limp. The Lord, your God. See, why isn't the Lord my God? You see what I'm saying? Because just, just remember this. Just remember this. The battle, because we know this is all speaking about the battle of Armageddon and what happens after a new Jerusalem is coming and all of this, and we're ruling and reigning with Christ for a 1,000 years, right, before the new heavens and new earth. Just imagine this. You, you're, you're a citizen in China. You weren't there at the battle of Armageddon, but you've seen the whole thing come down. Jesus, you've seen Jesus. You've seen him come down. Like you see the sun, you've seen Jesus come down. You know from the satellite, you know, live feeds, that this has all happened, right? What are you going to say now? Your God was the right God. That's what you're going to say. And then now you're going to start serving that God, right? That's what you're going to say. And that's exactly what's happened. Your God, your God was the right God. So the Lord takes away the punishment, and people will say to you, daughter of Zion, be glad and rejoice. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away your punishment. He's turned his back. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. Verse 16, on that day they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord, your God, is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. So the nations proclaim this to us and specifically now to the Jewish people. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. So either by removal of death or removal of, they're not, you know, the Muslims who have survived, whoever's there, they're not even going to be in Jerusalem anymore. They're gone. It's going to be illegal to live there unless you are uh, following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just like how the Muslims do it in Mecca now. You can't go to Mecca unless you're a Muslim. You won't be able to go there to, to Jerusalem unless you're a Christian, a believer. But here's the thing. See, they do it by force. We do it with God actually doing it, you know. They want to do it through military power. That's, that's why they're apocalyptic in their thinking and jihad. See, we believe in similar con because they copied off of us, but we believe it's all initiated and done by God himself, not by us fighting and doing it by the sword. That's the difference. That's why he's a false prophet and a cult leader, okay? Then it says, I will remove, verse 18, from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. See, see they're still alive, but he's dealing with them now. And he's, and he's literally making those kings, let's say the king of uh, Ireland wasn't even at that battle. He's going to make the king of Ireland come down and say, bow down before me, serve, serve me, and these are my people. They're your leaders. So he's going to make them now follow the Jewish people. And you can read more about that in Isaiah. Isaiah goes out of his way to describe these kinds of things. Zephaniah just kind of hints at it, but, but I'm helping you understand here, right? I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden reproach for you. Verse 19, at that time I will deal with all who oppress you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. 
trials. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before their very eyes or before your very eyes. So he says, I'm going to do this among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. So the peoples of the earth are going to see the Jewish people being blessed, and that's the people of God as well, says the Lord. Amen. Let's give it up for God's word today. Amen. (laughs) Praise God. How many love Jesus? Amen. So you got something out of Zephaniah? I hope that you did. I know I tried to tie some complex understandings of prophecy in there, but let me just review it again. When it's talking about the day of the Lord, it can refer to four different days of the Lord. The day of the Lord of God judging Babylon. The day of the Lord God judging uh, Israel at 70 AD. The day of the Lord at Armageddon when God comes down and establishes his kingdom. And then the day of the Lord where once and for all, only the righteous are in the new heavens and new earth, being with God forever. You can pull those things out of all the kinds of prophecy. So it's multi-layered days of the Lord. When you're looking at specifically those three days of the Lord that have to do with all the battles and all of these different things, they all can see that you're building upon one to the other to the other. So it's like they were looking forward to it in their day, and Babylon comes, but they don't see it all come to pass. And then Jesus comes and adds some more prophecies to that, and so do, so do the New Testament apostles. But it all doesn't happen in the 70 AD either. So what's been stacked up and what's been laid down is now a foundation for that last one to come and where it all comes to make sense to what everybody's been talking about, that day of the Lord, the full day of the Lord, okay? And where it applies for us is, is that we have to understand that God is always dealing with his people in a certain way, just like how you deal with your kids in a certain way. And congratulations on the twins. can't believe I've never said that to you in person yet, but congratulations. My wife and I have been praying for that, and you guys get in on the first try. You guys are awesome. Yeah, come on. That'd be so amazing to get that. But um, it's like you, you look at the scriptures, and, and you're saying, I see God treating Israel and his people differently. Yes, because he's a father to them, but the other nations aren't getting off. So it's not like I I told you people are trying to say, well, God's nice to the other nations but always mean to Israel. No, he actually prefers Israel over the nations. And the reason why they're catching all those lickings is because he favors them. He actually says he favors them, okay? So we'll always know that we were not Israel and born of that line. We'll know that we were the descendants of another tribe. But that's okay because we'll have no different status in the kingdom. But we'll see how God used the Jewish people for that purpose. And then when we look to how we're going to apply that to our culture is we're going to hold the church at a higher standard. We hold, we hold Lauren Daigle at a higher standard than we hold um, Nicki Minaj. Right? We don't care what Nicki Minaj says in one sense, but we care what Lauren Daigle says. Right, And so we have to go to the church and preach the message that we're in trouble. The judgment of God's going to start with us. Doesn't the Bible say that, that the judgment starts in the house of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, how much more harder for the unrighteous to be saved? Isn't that true, Juan? Do you believe that? Do you believe the scripture says that? Amen. And then we preach to the world and we say, hey, come on in. Come on into the ark. Come in to the safety where God is at, where his word is at, because it is going to go down, and it's going to come with fire, and it's going to destroy the earth, and it's going to look like all mankind and every beast and everything was destroyed. It's going to look that bad. 
Okay, I know you guys got to get to class. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you that you're giving us the word of the prophets, which you have spoken in times past. We pray we'll apply it appropriately and correctly to our lives. If there's any things that I didn't say that were correct, Lord, that they can go back and study further. I pray that they do, that we're all learning. There's so much mystery in these books. And that, Lord, we get the big concepts as we're studying out the mysteries. That you're going to come and judge, and we need to live for you and be humble and seek you, as you said to Zephaniah. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said...